The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. This morning we continue in the book of Ephesians. Today we're in Ephesians chapter 5. We've noticed throughout this book that in chapters 1 and 2 and 3 especially, we learn that someone can be in Christ totally by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this incredible gift the Bible describes as salvation. But then beginning in chapter 2 and talking on through the rest of the book, the book illustrates this new life in Christ as walking. In chapter 2, it says you used to walk this way, but now created in Christ, you can walk this way. Chapter 4, you used to walk this way, but now created in Christ, you can walk this way. And here in chapter 5, the same concept occurs. You used to walk this way, but now the life of Christ living in you and through you can walk this way. And I'll admit to you this morning, probably today's passage is the most counter-cultural of all the ones we'll have in Ephesians. But this is the life of Christ when it is lived in us and out of us. And so I've titled today's sermon, The Aroma and Aura of Jesus, because this passage will show us how the aroma of Jesus and the light of Jesus can be reflected and carried out in those who are united to him in faith. So if you're using the Pew Bible, join us in page 1162. You'll want to open Bible in front of you because we will look at words that God has breathed out and what we can learn from them. And this passage will show us what it's like when Christ's aroma becomes our aroma and when his light shines on us, especially in countercultural ways. Let's begin in verse 1. Be, therefore, imitators of God as beloved children. Parents, don't we all know that our children mimic us in ways that are both encouraging and in many ways that are rather embarrassing? I have a number of stories I won't tell. But there are many phrases that you hear them say and you think, where did they pick that up? And you say it five days later. (laughs) And all sorts of things like that are just reflected in our children, in our home. Our children look like us by nature and they act like us by nurture. And Ephesians 5.1 is saying the same is true of those who belong to Christ. Notice it says at the end, they are beloved children. So the very nature of Christ has become theirs. But it also says we must be imitators of our Father, meaning the nurture must grow and develop in us. And here we have Christianity summarized beautifully in verse 2. What would it look like in a word to be like our Father? And verse 2 says, in a word, it would mean to walk in love. If we were to be like God, our Father, if we were to mimic him as his children, we would live in love. How would we learn to live in love? What would make that possible? And the answer beautifully is carried out in the rest of verse 2. And the answer is because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. If you were here last Sunday, we very quickly went through John 3.16 to end Vacation Bible School. Don't you hear the same verbiage here? John 3.16 famously says, For God so loved the world. Notice here in verse 2, it says, So Christ loved us. John 3.16 says, God gave his only son. Here in verse 2 says, Christ gave himself up for us. The love of God 
is what makes the love in us possible. And notice that love is unquestionably the theme. The children are beloved children. The new walk is a walk in love, and that walk is rooted in Christ's prior and eternal love. Christian, I want to remind you this morning, however you feel on a given month or whatever your week was like, I have really good news for you. God loves you. You're not a human he tolerates. You're not a neighbor he endures. You're a child in whom he delights. He loves you. Christ loves you. The Spirit loves you. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit planned to give the salvation that we need because of love. Do you know, it's so important to be clear here. This is what makes Christianity completely different from everything else. Have you ever heard all religions are the same? Well, if by that you mean people who believe in human achievement as success and salvation, yes, those are all the same. Because step one is what must I do? And step two is then what I earn. Only Christianity is different. Christianity says, no, God loves us when we were yet sinners. Christ gave himself for us, though we couldn't earn it or deserve it. And the fruit of love follows the gift of love that Christ has provided. See, the order is different, isn't it? Everything else is what must I do. But Christianity is the good news of what God has done through his son for us. In Christianity alone, good works don't lead to my achievement of salvation. Good works flow from God's achievement of my salvation. Don't confuse the order. It makes Christianity good news. And it makes everything else burdensome news. Now, the good news means that Christ did something amazing for us. Look again in verse 2. He loved us, he gave himself for us, and he did that as a fragrant offering. This is a phrase that may sound strange, especially if you're not very familiar with the Bible. What are these fragrant offerings? That sounds odd. I don't have a background on what this is. The first fragrant offering we read about in the Bible is done by Noah. After surviving the flood, he has an offering to recognize God's saving grace given to a sinner who doesn't deserve it. And the Bible describes God's response to that as that it was pleasing to him. Throughout the Bible, then, all these sacrifices are given. And repeatedly, we see that there is this sense of God being pleased with them. But then we read that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, there is an eternal satisfaction that God has in what Christ has accomplished. Let me bring out two things about an aroma that are so wonderful. First, an aroma, an aroma can please you in a way that overcomes whatever displeasure you have. My grandmother is from Sicily, uh, just south of Italy, and she had this secret special pasta sauce that she tried to take with her to glory. But thankfully, before she left, (laughs) some of my cousins wrested the secret recipe out of her. And uh, I'm thankful for Medios and for all the Italian places in Raleigh, but I'm going to be frank with you. When I come home on a Friday, if I open the door and I smell that sauce, it pleases me. (laughs) Whatever else was going on in my day, whatever else was happening to me, that overpowers and overcomes whatever feelings I had. And I'm well pleased. God is well pleased in what Christ has done. And any who are in him, he no longer sees us according to the stench of our sin, but to the aroma of Christ's work. 
Not only does Christ's work have an overcoming aroma, but it's also transportative. Have you ever had a smell that takes you to another place or another time? Imagine you're walking in January and some brave soul is barbecuing in the backyard. And it reminds you of summer. And here, this passage reminds us that God, God's Son, has given a fragrant offering that causes us to be transported in the mind of His Father so that we are now seen in His Son and His Son forever. Transported to the aroma of Christ. Now this power that God has done for us in love is now the aroma in which you and I can walk. It is the love of Christ. But I do want to tell you right here at the outset, the aroma in Ephesians 5, especially verses 3 through 14, is probably the most countercultural aroma of the rest of the book of Ephesians. So let me say this to you up front. Brother or sister in Christ, if the love of Christ will work out your life, what it's talking about here, you will stand out. You will not be like people around you. The aroma of Christ will be distinct. And what I'm going to show you from verses 3 through 7 is all of these verses deal with sexual expression and ethics. Let's look now in verse 3. It's all about sexuality. Verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. I first want to show you that all of this is referring to sex. The Greek word pornea is the one translated sexual immorality. You can surely hear from that word that it refers to sexual activity. The next word, akatharsia, is translated impurity. It's a broad catch-all term, but it is used to refer to sexual impurity. And the third one, you could think, Josh, coveting surely doesn't refer to sexuality. But don't we know the Tenth Commandment? How does it begin? Thou shalt not cover what? Thy neighbor's wife. All of these words are referring to sexuality. And what they all have in common is a sexual approach of taking what I want, no matter what it means to that other person, and no matter what God who created it would think of it. This is what the Bible says ought not be named even among saints. Verse 4 continues to talk about sexuality when it talks about speech. Filthiness is obscene filth in speech. Foolishness is low talk and crudeness is vulgar speech, all making what was special profane, what was distinct common, what was beautiful random. So what makes Jesus' covenantal sacrificial love, what makes his aroma distinct? And look again in verse 2. What defines the love of Christ? It is sacrificial giving. And it is covenantal to God. Doesn't the text say that? He gave himself. He did not take. He gave himself. And he gave himself an offering to God covenantally. So also will be our view of sexuality. Our sexuality in Christ will be a theology of the cross. Not what I can take but how I give sacrificially according to God's covenantal design. This will be unlike anything that's ever been. It'll be like Christ. I'm very, very thankful we have a children's church 
uh, for many reasons, but one of the reasons is because it allows me to share what the Bible actually says. And so I'm going to do that this morning. So I'm going to say what the Bible's talking about, which is a little bit explicit, but I only want to say what the Bible's clear on. I want to help us understand how what God is saying here is so different from the way human beings live. And let's start in the first century. In the first century, the era in which Paul is writing, what were the common views on sex in the first century? Um, There's two books that have been especially helpful to me. Kyle Harper wrote a book called From Shame to Sin, published by Harvard in 2013. Matthew Ruger wrote a book called Sexual Morality in a Christless World. I'll quote them a couple times, but many other books make similar points. Uh, Here are four things that were true in the first century, uh, if they're helpful to you to understand. The first century view on sexuality viewed both women and young boys as sexual objects for an adult man's gratification. In the first century, there was a view of the afterlife called the Isle of the Blessed, and here's a quotation of how that island was described. In this afterlife, all the wives are shared in common without jealousy, and all the boys submit to their pursuers without resistance. This is a common view in the first century, especially in the Roman Empire. A second one is that in the first century, economic disparity encourage you to use someone sexually of a lower economic class than you for your own personal pleasure as a tool for your own gratification. What Harper says about this is a bit too graphic to read, but I'll say that at least one-tenth to one-third of the first century world was in slavery, and they were normally the victims of such usage. The third common view on sexuality in the first century was that prostitution was not only officially sanctioned, but it was actually also publicly encouraged. I've seen archaeological digs of the city of Corinth, for example, in the ancient world. And in Corinth, you had your house, and in the center of town, you had your temple or wherever you worked. And in between your house and the temple were many, many public brothels. And because there was no research on sexually transmitted diseases, people were expected for their health to stop at the brothel on the way in and normally also on the way home from work. And all this was looked on totally favorably. There were 45 public brothels in just the city of Rome alone. And when politicians attempt to overturn them, they were unable to because, as Harper writes, the commodification of sex was carried out with such ruthless efficiency as an industrial operation that the unfree body being used to bear its pressures was little by little becoming a corpse, which is a helpful way to understand how a human being was used and belittled. Finally, in the first century, sex was primarily about dominance, how you can assert yourself over and against someone else. Matthew Ruger writes, In the Roman mind, the strong took what they wanted to take as long as they were the aggressor. So the time and the place in which Paul is saying sexuality ought to follow the aroma of Christ that emptied himself sacrificially and trusted God covenantally, he was writing something totally unlike the way in which the culture lived. This week I read a book by a pastor who lives in the South. What he wrote in the book is really, really awful, so I won't share his his name. But in the book, he's making an argument that our, our churches should only have one goal, and that is to get as large as they can get, no matter what we have to say to get them to that point. And here's a quotation from his book. Culture is like the wind, 
You can't stop it. You shouldn't spit in it. But if like a good sailor, you'll just adjust your sails, then you can follow the culture where you need to go. Now, friend, that is not even close to what the Bible teaches, nor to what a Christian has ever been. In Ruger's book, he notes this, Our early Christian ancestors did not confess biblical chastity in a safe culture that agreed with them. The sexual morality they taught and practiced stood out as unnatural to the Roman world. In fact, limiting intercourse to just a married man and woman were not only different from Roman ethics, they were utterly against Roman ideals of virtue and love. So what Paul wrote was totally contrary to how the first century viewed sexuality. But now let me take just a moment to say how I think it's totally contrary to how we view sexuality today. So let's move from the first century to the 21st century. And I'll just make three big observations. I believe sexuality today is characterized first by being self-centered. For thousands of years, sex was thought of as an act that you do. But now recently, sex is an identity of who you are, which is literally as self-centered as it can be. To say the policies, the politics, and the social fabric must conform to who I think I am based on what I wish to do. This is self-centered. Second, sexuality today is self-gratifying. In this way, it's like it was in the first century. When a person is used like a corpse, so pornography proliferates today under the same pretext, using someone else for my own pleasure, regardless of what this does to another. And finally, today in the 21st century, sex is very importantly self-defined. It's not something sacrificial, but also importantly, it's not something done covenantally in the sight of God. It is self-defined. In the 21st century, all sex is celebrated unless it's between a husband and a wife. So what do we do in a time in which we have a message that is so different from the people of whom we live around? And here I want to show us something from the passage. In the passage, Paul does not contrast sexual immorality with morality. He doesn't say, don't be immoral, be moral according to the standards of your social mores. No, the contrast is not immorality with social morality. The contrast is immorality with Jesus. The contrast is taken with the love of Christ. So this morning we should remember this. God is transcultural and countercultural. The truth of Christ is a kingdom not found in this world. Therefore, to live out the aroma of Christ will be to live out something not found anywhere else in this society. This passage then prepares us to trust the joy of something that God has made that isn't found anywhere else. In our passage today in Ephesians 5, it says that we are to walk in love sexually, and then it tells us how not to do that. But look down a little bit so you can see how Jesus does it. Look down in Ephesians 5, and let's pick up in verse 25. Lord willing, we'll look at this in weeks to come, but I just want to at least show you this morning the self-emptying and covenantal love that Christ himself models. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, sacrificial given, that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Perhaps you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he would potentially go to the cross, he had a moment of incredible pressure In fact, crying drops of blood. And under that pressure, he said, importantly, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Approaching the Father's will as right, even requiring sacrificial emptying of himself. And that posture is the posture in which the aroma of Christ is lived out in our sexuality. And I think the heart of that posture is given at the end of verse 4. So look there with me. So let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Whereas taking indicates an unthankful, unsatisfied, acquisitive heart, thanksgiving indicates an appreciative, grateful, and fulfilled heart. We can give thanksgiving when we say, God, you are good. And what you will for us is right. And what you will for us is a blessing. Proverbs gives an example of this that I think is memorable. In Proverbs 5, 15 through 18, it says, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone. Not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Proverbs tells us there's a thanksgiving that can come when you enjoy what God has ordained and its depth over a lifetime rather than the shallowness of what you could take and its fleeting pleasure. Now verse 5 and verse 6 state a matter rather clearly. Let's look at them back to back and then tease out what they mean. For you may be sure of this, That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These are direct scriptures that speak very frankly to us. How must we then understand them? Well, let me quote my favorite theologian, Stephanie Scally. (laughs) This week I came home on Thursday after studying the whole day and told her, honestly, honey, I'm struggling with how to communicate such a direct text, which I know will be hard for all of us to hear. Help me communicate it well. And so that evening we read it together, we prayed together, I fell asleep. (laughs) In the morning we woke up, she called me on the way to church, and then she sent me a text. And so I'm going to read her text word for word. It's the best that I've read on this passage. She writes, verse 5 makes so much more sense in the context of sacrificial love. Of course, then, an immoral person could not inherit the kingdom of God because they've not received the basic truth about God that God is a selfless, loving giver. Christ and God both selflessly loved each other and sinners for our benefit. Therefore, one who rejects the love of God and takes advantage of others thinks only of himself and removes himself from the kingdom of selfless love. Well, when her book is published, I hope I at least get a footnote in there. 
But I think it rightly explains that verse 5 and 6 are reminding us that someone who rejects the heart of God, who selflessly gives, is rejecting the offer of a kingdom about self-emptying love before God. But friend, please see the language. It says you may be sure in verse 5. And verse 6 says, let no one deceive you. If the text says, let no one deceive you, that must imply that we would really like to be deceived in this. We would much prefer to be deceived because then we might not have to humble our pride. But the life of Christ is a life of humbling our pride and giving sacrificially and trusting God covenantally. I know sometimes as a sinner, when I hear something, That makes me uncomfortable. And and if you're like me, maybe you can understand. When you hear something that feels uncomfortable, maybe even directed at you, you can become combative. How is this good for me? How is this gracious that God would say these things? Let me give you a couple thoughts here. First, I would want to remind us that the warning from God is in and of itself grace. Haven't you ever seen a sign that said, caution, hot, Flammable, bridge out. You wouldn't drive off the cliff and say, Don't tell me what to do. You'd understand that it is grace warning you from the destruction that faces us when our selfish pride pervades us. But I also want you to see God's grace is greater yet. Not only does God graciously warn, God graciously rescues by taking our place. So if verse 6 says that there is righteous wrath against sons of disobedience, notice carefully verse 7. Therefore do not become partakers with them. You don't have to be an English major to know that the with them means there's been an us that have been rescued from the them. And the us have been rescued from the them not because they're better than the them, but because they've received the blood of Jesus. The us don't experience the wrath of God because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God, there's a rescue. And that rescue was provided, as we saw in verse 2, by God's Son Himself who loved us and gave Himself as a sacrificial fragrant offering for us. So this morning, no matter who you are or no matter how you feel about your sexual past or sin, God's saving grace is available for any of us. What Jesus did on the cross, that fragrant offering, is an aroma that can overcome anybody's past. In fact, the Bible characterizes that from beginning to end. Whether you're Rahab, the only one spared in Jericho, or whether you're the woman at the well who Jesus says he can satisfy from the heart forever, nobody can out the loving sacrifice of Jesus. So this morning, I want you to know that Jesus gave himself for you. And there's no shame that he can't cover, and there's no sin that he can't pay, and there's no aroma he can't overcome. This means now that you can not only be forgiven, but that you can have his aroma and his aura. So now notice verse 8, how it moves from the aroma to the aura of Christ. You were at one time in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
It's such good news to know that we didn't turn on the light, which is why we can be confident it will persist. We did not look in the mirror and make a change. No, God who said, let there be light, has shown the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus in our own hearts. Hence, the light of Christ is reflecting and emanating from us. This is, I think, the point verse 9 is trying to make. Notice the language. It's a little odd. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. My mind struggled with this phrase. How would light have fruit? Isn't that a mixed metaphor? But remember in the first century, when they think of light, they think of the sun, the moon, the stars, fire, candle. There is no electrical transformer or breaker in the house. And so I think it's a way of trying to indicate that this fruit only comes from its source. And its source is the Lord Jesus Christ. With Christ in us, we can see. We can see what is good and right and true. And so verse 10, we can try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And how do we find that? Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Christ's light shines in us and then it reflects to us from his word. Now verse 11, so take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. I could see how the last part of the verse would evoke some questions in your mind. Josh, what does it mean to expose the works of darkness? Does that mean I have a cultural mandate to become a journalist or to put a spotlight on everything that's wrong? I think that totally misses what the verse is saying. The point is that light as light just shows darkness as darkness. This is why Romans sixteen nineteen says, I would want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. You don't have to become a cultural expert in darkness to expose it. You just have to reflect the light of Christ. So if someone says, man, Christian, you just don't know enough. You're not sophisticated enough. Don't confuse sophistication with sin. Just enjoy the light. Verse 11, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Perhaps you know what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night and have to try to navigate your dark room. In the last couple of weeks, that's happened to me a few times, and I've noticed there's an extra human laying on the floor as one of my children has snuck into the room. And navigating that in the dark is a tricky thing. We've made some loud noises. <laughs> when you're navigating a room in the dark and you don't know what it looks like, you have no real hope to navigate it well. But when the light is on, you have clarity. That doesn't mean that waking up is easy. Waking up out of a dead sleep is hard. But when the light of Christ shines on you, you can see. And you can see the glory that God intends for you. Well, I think you could be here at this point and you could be thinking, Josh, this all sounds good and it all sounds true, but it sounds discouraging. Maybe you're here and you're like, I am a Christian. I have put my faith in God, but honestly, I don't always live like I want to live. And there is sin, even in my sexuality and in my sexual expression, that I'm not proud of. What hope is there for me? This month I watched um, a movie based on a true story 
And I thought it illustrated this well. It's the story of Ron Clark, and perhaps you know his name. He was a public school teacher in Aurora, North Carolina. He taught fifth grade there. And after teaching there for years, he felt burdened to go somewhere where there was significant need. And so he packed his car and he drove to New York City. And he looked for a job for a while. And eventually he was granted a job in Harlem in the worst performing public school in the entire city of New York. When he was given that school, he was also given its worst class. And the movie, assuming it follows the true story fairly well, shows how he is pouring into these students, emptying himself for them, and it's very, very difficult. They're very resistant to him. These students have lives of rejecting and pride and anger and fighting, and most of them also are from homes that are extremely rough and difficult where they've been sinned against in horrible ways. But at some point, after being there for several months, the school starts to warm to him and his class starts to warm to him. And then there's this beautiful turning point where it seems like all the students are his and he is theirs and they've become united. And so at cost to himself, he buys tickets to take every one of the students to the Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. It's the early 1990s. And when he gets them all in the car and takes them there, they're all so excited. This will be the best event most of them have ever had in their whole life. But when they're about to walk in, he notices all the students that have gone in, but he notices one is not there. The student that's missing is one that has really had a troubled time, one that has made such strides, but one that has really, really struggled. And so then Ron Clark leaves the 99, as it were, and pursues the one who has gone astray. He goes back to the foster home in New York where this student has been, and he finds that the student had graffitied on the wall a picture of the Phantom of the Opera that he was going to enjoy. But in doing so, his foster parent, who was an alcoholic, had beaten him, and he had run away hopelessly. And so Ron walks a couple blocks, and then he walks down in back aisle, and he finds on a mattress in the middle of the aisle this one student laying there, bloodied, failed, forgotten, And when Ron comes to the student, the student says, I'm not worth it. But Ron says to him, I love you. I'm here for you. And I'm not going to leave you. And having lost out on the show himself, Ron takes the student to a home where he can be safely adopted and loved. And it reminded me that I have a good shepherd who will leave the 99 to pursue the one over and over and over. So Christian, even this morning, Christ loves you and gave himself for you. A fragrant offering. So as we partake of communion, if it's time for you to receive the love of Christ, open your heart to him, to a person who loves you and gave himself for you so that you can enter his kingdom. But Christian, if you come to it as one who has sinned and failed and feels battered again, then remember that he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you, Lord, for the saving work of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we could summarize from Ephesians 5, the character of our Father is love. Thank you, God, that you loved us and sent your son for us. And thank you that Christ loved us 
and gave himself for us. And Lord, thank you that he is the sweet aroma that satisfies your justice and overcomes our sin. So may anyone who needs him call on him this morning and receive the forgiveness that he alone has. But Lord, we also recognize that to walk in true love means to sacrificially give ourselves in the God-covenanted design of marriage if we are to express sexual desire. This is not like any culture that has ever lived post the fall. So to live like Jesus has no precedent, it has no template, and it doesn't squarely fit with anyone around us. But Lord, help us to rejoice if the sacrificial love of Jesus is an aroma of life and is a light of life. And may you use it, Lord, even to bring people to the life and light that its source is, the life and light of Christ, even now. In his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.